Today's reading will be from Proverbs 9, 1 through 6, and then 13 through 18. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. The woman, folly, is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks a lot, Brian. Appreciate that. Morning, Redemption. So we are in the book of Proverbs this morning for the next seven weeks. So turn there. Uh, we are going to work our way through uh, uh, chapter 9 of Proverbs, uh, but we'll actually start uh, just by way of introduction in, in chapter 1 and chapter 3 as well. Before we get started, though, a couple of other things we're going to do. A little disjointed to start. First of all, I have some sad news. We have some changes to our staff at Redemption Arcadia. It's not Stephanie, in case you were wondering why we had her up here. Um, but uh, m many of you know uh, you're either involved in the children's ministry uh, because you're, you're, you have children or because you have volunteered in children's ministry. Is uh, Tammy uh, Lauterbach, who's been our children's director for about 15 months, is pregnant with twins, and uh, she is what you might call a high-risk pregnancy. And, and we started to uh, suspect a couple of weeks ago that very soon her doctor would probably just finally say, you can't get out of bed anymore. Uh, but we thought it would be probably around Thanksgiving time and that we would have time to, a little bit of time to prepare. Um, and I had that meeting with her on Thursday saying, look, we'll do whatever we need to do and, and, and help you out. And uh, the next day she went to the doctor and that was the day of the doctor on that Friday. Uh, it was a Friday a week, uh, a week ago doctor said, you're not getting out of bed anymore. And so um, with that, she began to assess the fact that she already has two little kids. She's a homeschooler, and she's about to have twins uh, early next year. Uh, she, she just finally came back and said, you know, I don't think I can do this job anymore going forward. And it was kind of like, yeah, duh, I guess. But I was hoping. You know? <laughs> she's been just absolutely wonderful. And, and so... Um, what we are doing in the process right now is we're just kind of in a transition process. We have people who can lead on, on Sunday. Tyler James, our family pastor, is going to step into that and take a much bigger role in that area. But we are going to be looking for a uh, children's coordinator uh, to, to replace uh, all the work that Tammy did. Uh, there's a volunteer, uh, children's volunteer event on uh, November 4th. Uh, Saturday night that uh, was uh, is for the children's volunteers, big event, um, but that event is also now going to be uh, to thank Tammy as well. So uh, be thinking about how you can thank her. She and Eric, of course, are going to stick around and be still be a part of the, the church. And, you know, I appreciate her commitment to church growth, having twins and everything. So that's really nice as well. Um, if you were somebody who took one of the gift cards for the children's volunteers, uh, she asked me to remind you this morning, make sure you have those actual gift cards back. 
uh, to us by October 22nd in order to make those available. The other change to staff that we have, again, sad, um, Ben Baer, who has done a wonderful job as our community and global initiatives liaison, has decided also to step away from uh, that position. Uh, and and, and uh, he's still around, he's still involved in the church, but he's also uh, gonna be stepping away. And so we have those two, uh, you might call them holes to fill, and we're working on it behind the scenes with the elders and, and, and with the staff. So. You could be praying to that end for us in the midst of that. Uh, the third thing I want to mention this morning is um, sometimes a pastor's convictions get laid out on the congregation and you have to endure. So um, one of the convictions I've had lately uh, is, is just the, the conviction that, that, first of all, that God's word is supreme, it's authoritative, and second of all, that there is, uh, there is a benefit in just reading God's word and not commenting on it. Now, that's really hard for me because I'm a student of the Word and I like to try to explain the Word because I know sometimes it's weak or hard, but I've just been convicted lately. The, the thing that kind of sent me over the top was last week I was reading uh, yet another book by Tim Keller and he, and he actually talked about this again in his book. I was like, that's interesting the way the Holy Spirit worked that out. I've been feeling convicted by this and now Keller also uh, says it. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do during this Proverbs series, which is seven weeks long, is very often you hear people say, you should read Proverbs and the Psalms. They kind of complement each other. The Psalms are prayers, and the Proverbs are wisdom, and they really go well together. So what I'm going to do during this next seven weeks is I'm going to start every message by just reading a Psalm understand, as a prayer over all of us, over the congregation. And let me, let me help you understand, this is not going to be only a discipline for you if you have trouble listening to people read. Uh, some of you are really going to love this because you know the beauty of God's word just washing over you. Um, but it'll also be a discipline for me to not comment on it in the middle of it. I'm just going to read it and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit opens our heart to what's being said and also understand that these are prayers and that really it's a prayer over all of us and and in these prayers in the Psalms, if there isn't something in there that connects to you and your life situation at one time or another, then I would suggest you're not living out in the real world and in the marketplace, because there's just a lot of stuff there. So uh, let me pray before we get started, and then this morning we're going to read Psalm 22, which is a messianic and lament psalm, and it's a psalm of David, and then we'll get into uh, Proverbs, okay? Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word and its truth. And God, we are uh, people who are uh, not only challenged by the authority of your word and try to figure out uh, places where we might uh, rationalize it away, but God, we're also people who, uh, by your grace and by your love and by your forgiveness, we are called to submit to your word. Your word is your wisdom and your will poured out. And so we're called to submit to that. And so I ask that you would give us uh, hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit and have the mind uh, that is in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Philippians, and that we would be able to see uh, the beauty of your word, the truth of your word, and the uh, eternal nature of your word. As we study today in Proverbs, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to who you are and who your son Jesus is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kinship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are into Proverbs. Proverbs is a book in the Old Testament. It's considered wisdom literature. There are different genres in the Bible, and this is of the wisdom genre. Other books that are considered wisdom uh, literature would be Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and uh, Job, and even in the New Testament, many people say that the letter of James is also written as wisdom literature. Um, Proverbs is about wisdom for God's people, and it's also about uh, God's wisdom uh, hoping to attract uh, those who are not God's people to his will and to his wisdom. And one of the things that the book of Proverbs does is it is constantly making comparisons primarily between 
what a wise person does and what a fool does, making comparisons between wisdom and folly, and then examining the consequences of both. So why might that be important now in today's context? I, there are a bunch of quotes I, I looked at and considered. I, here's one thought for us, okay? This is from Tony Ranke and Brad Littlejohn. We live in an age of distractedness and distractibility. Distractibility can be regarded as the mental equivalent of obesity. For instance, our phones give us a constant diet of pop-up Oreos, marshmallows, and potato chips that make the pursuit of wisdom virtually impossible. There's no pun intended at the end of that, by the way. So when we talk about wisdom, what do we mean by wisdom? Let's define wisdom. We have four definitions here. Uh, the first one is this. It is the expert application of knowledge to life. It's, it's taking what you know and, and being able to apply it in the context of your life in a way that won't do you harm. Um, and, and this is impo an important di distinction. Wisdom is not knowledge. It's the application of knowledge. And one of the challenges we have today is that there's a lot of very knowledgeable people out there, and we have knowledge at our fingertips now. I mean, all you have to do is pull out your smartphone, and you can fact-check anyone at any time for any reason. And by the way, since the Internet has nothing but truth on it, you can trust what you find on the Internet when you're fact-checking. Uh, but gaining or having knowledge and information is not the same as pursuing or, and living out of wisdom. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. It is proficiency in the art of godly living. It's proficiency in the art of godly living. We can approach the biblical text scientifically. There are scientific ways that we can do that. But there's also an art to approaching God. There's, there's the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's our, our, our intuition, our, our ability to know what's really right and what's really wrong, and then our ability to fool ourselves and, and explain to ourselves why we can go with what's really wrong instead of what's really right. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? But this is, this is a great way to describe wisdom. It's proficiency in the art of godly living. Well, what does that mean? I would say it's like this. You sum it up like this. The art of godly living involves understanding who God is and then understanding who we are and then us submitting ourselves to his wisdom and will. That's the art of godly living. Here's the third definition. The ability to discern what is true, right, and lasting. Again, this is very challenging in a culture uh, that believes in instant gratification and the hope of no consequences for foolish decisions. We live in a, in a world where we're always living in the now, you know, FOMO and YOLO, and, and, and let's, let's, let's just, who cares about what happened? I might not even be alive next week. Let's just, let's just do it right now. Let's not learn from the past. Uh, the problem with that, though, is that we get ourselves in trouble when we don't think about the long-term consequences. Even things that we're sure are right right now, but we have an inkling about how this could go south later on, we'll still do them now and just hope for the best, and then we pay the consequences later. And then number four, it's a way of thinking and living that has the ability to set the ideal aside and meet the demands of reality. It's a way of thinking and living that gives us the ability to set the ideal aside and meet the demands of reality. I'll have more on that later. Folly, or foolishness, on the other hand, is a way of living and thinking that ignores and denies how things actually are. 
this is the way I want it. I see reality isn't going to let that happen, but I'm going to go for this anyway. That is a large part of what foolishness is. Uh, Proverbs is essentially a collection of sensible sayings. It's a collection. Sometimes it reads like a fortune cookie. Uh, It's not uh, filled with necessarily hard and fast rules, but rather trustworthy principles that are to be applied in your own context of life. The book was called by one commentator, uh, the Bible's Twitter feed. But the problem with that definition is that the Proverbs are God's word. How many of you go back and relive and relish old, dated tweets? Practically no one. And if you do, you need to get a life, I'm telling you. And how many of you have ever heard that saying, that tweet did not age well? Okay, here you go. God is timeless, and a timeless God never produces dated material. So his tweets always age well. Proverbs is is more applicable to our life now than it's ever been before. And, And like I said, I've been saying this all along, but Proverbs emphasizes the consequences of both wise and foolish thoughts, decisions, and behaviors. It emphasizes the consequences. If you read Proverbs, you can never, ever say, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. Because it just, it, it lets us know where we're headed, what direction we're headed when we practice wisdom or foolishness. Here's a pretty helpful uh, definition from the, the scholar Dwayne Garrett. Most Proverbs work by making a comparison and leaving the reader to work out the details of how the proverb applies to different situations in the midst of their current cultural conventions. In English, and he quotes a proverb, not not one from the Bible, but a common one, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink, is regularly applied to human relationships rather than ranching, and the competent reader understands this. You're not applying this to ranching. And and the social context of the Proverbs, the context that the Proverbs speak into, so for instance, the family and the workplace and the public sphere and theology, those are just some of the areas that Proverbs speak into. Those social contexts communicate clearly that the ethics and principles of relationships, business, work, and instruction must be formed in conjunction with an understanding of who God is and what he wills, rather than independent from God. When we take on our own wisdom, when we take on worldly wisdom or cultural wisdom, and we uh, jettison God's wisdom, that's when we get into trouble. You You have to do this in conjunction with what he wills. And the book employs three primary characters uh, in which to present these nuggets of wisdom. There's the wise person, there's the foolish person, and then there's the simple person. Uh, The wise is the person who seeks God's wisdom and will for his or her life, submits to it, and adapts their life to God's will and wisdom. That's the wise person. The foolish person is the one who refuses God's wisdom and will and expects other people to submit to them and adapt their lives to them and their will. That's the fool. And then the simple are those who have yet to pick a team. 
They're, they're evaluating. They're trying to figure out which direction they're going to go. And in Proverbs 9, that's one of the things that we, uh, that we look at. The wise are also referred to in Scripture. There are other names for the wise. Primarily, they're referred to as the upright, the diligent, and the prudent. So when you see upright, diligent, or prudent, you're talking about a wise person. The foolish people are also, also have little nicknames. They're referred to as the wicked, the lazy, the scoffer, and the mocker. Wicked, the lazy, the scoffer, and the mocker. But it is a mistake for us to view Proverbs as an in-group and out-group kind of a deal. <clears throat> the number of people who say, I believe in Jesus, therefore I must be wise, are missing some steps in there. They are missing some steps in there. Because the setting of Proverbs assumes that there are fools even among God's people. That there are God's people who are shunning and refusing the will and wisdom of God. There are people who come to Bible studies, serve, and come to church, and yet they are rejecting the will and wisdom of God at almost every turn. They are fools, and they've fooled themselves about a lot of things. Wisdom is also personified in Proverbs as a woman. Personification is a common literary technique used to make literature more image-based and thought-provoking. And those of you who are wives are now explaining to your husband that this is a good move by Solomon, right? John Goldengay, who's a wonderful Old Testament scholar, says this. The portrait of Lady Wisdom takes many forms in Proverbs. She's an awesome goddess and a playful child. She's a comforting mother and a challenging prophet. And she is a mysterious lover hidden among the lilies. It's a great description of who Lady Wisdom is. And finally, before we get into it, Proverbs clearly demonstrates, I believe, four practical themes. Here's the first one. God's will is intensely sensible for everyday living. God's will is intensely sensible for everyday living. There isn't anything that we do that we can't apply the will and wisdom of God to. Second of all, a life lived in submission to God's will and wisdom is a life of contentment. A big part of God's will and wisdom is to call us to contentment. Not a lack of ambition, but to be content. Get up in the morning, go get them. Charge hard. Do everything you're called to do. Do everything you're supposed to do. And do it the best you can. But then at the end of the day, be happy, be content with who you are, who you're with, what you have, where you are, and where you work. Be content with that. Here's a third thing. A life lived in submission to God's will and wisdom is a life that is useful to those who are around you, to others around you. You want to be useful to other people? You want to be helpful? Uh, you want to know how to win friends and influence people? Be a person of wisdom. And number four, a life lived by God's will and wisdom does not just happen. It, might, it must be diligently sought, pursued, and studied. You have to go after this. You can't decide one day, all right, I'm wise. That's the end of that story. I'll move on. You got to do this every single day. Uh, again, author, researcher, and pastor Tony Ranke writes this. Wisdom must be pursued persistently, and to pursue it means we must also linger over it ruminating. The pursuit of wisdom is mental aerobics. 
So uh, one way to get this started is let me just read to you a couple of the introductory passages out of Proverbs and make a couple of comments, and then we'll get to chapter 9. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It's a great way to get into this. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then he just starts right in. It's no, hi, how are you? Glad to hear from you. Glad to see you. He just starts right in. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the youth, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So right out of the gate, you see that there there are synonyms in this book that are going to be used for wisdom. So anytime uh, the, the author of the proverb talks about prudence, discretion, understanding, guidance, knowledge, any, any of those words, instruction, insight, all of those are synonyms for God's wisdom. And then right here in the very beginning, he also says, here is what God's wisdom will lead to in your life. There are four things, and it's not comprehensive, but there are four really important things. Here you go. It'll lead to wise dealing. Do you want to be shrewd? Do you want to have understanding? Get God's wisdom. It'll lead to righteousness. It'll lead to justice. You want to be a person of justice? You need God's wisdom to be able to do that. And it leads to equity. It leads to shrewdness, justice, righteousness, and equity. And then you look down there um, in verses 5 and 6, and there's that truth about wisdom that you got to you got to hang in there with it. You got to pursue it. You got to listen. You got to sit under it. You got to allow yourself to be guided by it. You can be exposed to wisdom all day long, but if you refuse to sit under it and pursue it and listen and incorporate it into your life, it's not going to help you at all. And then of course, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, very famous passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So you see in these first two little passages this idea of fearing. And that's an important notion. So we saw it at the end of of, uh, that passage in chapter 1, we see it again here. We need to understand what it means to to fear in this context, okay? Fear here is used, uh, I guess the best way, the best term to use it would be reverential awe, an understanding of who you are and who God is. It's the fact that you look at, you, you may think you're pretty spiffy yourself, but you look at God and you suddenly realize, I'm not all that. That's the fear. It's a reverential awesomeness, a a, a worthiness. It's an understanding of of who God is. It is not, I'm I'm not a great flyer, and if when you get into turbulence and you hit that first jolt that nobody was expecting, you know, I get get frightened, okay? That's not the type of fear we're talking about. It's not the type of fear some of you may have 
that boss that you just don't want to go into his or her office and talk to them about anything because you're just afraid. They're scary. They're, that, that's not the kind of fear we're talking about here. It's a reverential uh, awe that leads us into worship. So for the text today, ironically and antithetically, today's passage is more narrative and contextualized. Uh, there, there is kind of a story being told here, but don't get used to it, because that'll be the last time we kind of look at uh, anything that's narrative in the Proverbs. Uh, what we have, uh, here's the outline for today. Uh, the first six verses is an invitation from Lady Wisdom. And what you'll see in there is that Lady Wisdom is diligently prepared to make her invitation to the simple. And then, in the middle, in between, there are observations about wisdom. Not, it's, again, not comprehensive, but it's some really helpful insights about dealing with wisdom and people who might be seeking wisdom. That's verses 7 through 12. And then finally, at the end, we get an invitation from Ms. Folly. And Ms. Folly is an interesting person because she is obnoxious and vapid. She's empty of knowledge, and she's very obnoxious, but one thing she does know is she does know how to be seductive. She does know how to strategically try to lure people in. That's the one thing that she is uh, good at. And ultimately, this text today forces the reader to ask this question of ourself, and, and this is the big idea today. The choice is simple. Are you going to choose life or death? So here we go. Let's go. The first six verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So Lady Wisdom is fully prepared. She's thinking ahead. She understands how to plan. She understands consequences. She's fully submitted to God because it is God's will and wisdom that we're talking about. She has not only prepared the venue for a proper invitation, notice that her house is, is all fixed up and beautiful, but she's also prepared a magnificent meal, a, a sumptuous feast. And the invitation from the young women is a picture. It's, it's a word picture that in their culture helps people to understand that, that um, uh, wisdom leads to strength, character, and judicial planning, and that it is an honor to receive this invitation from Ms. Wisdom. You're honored to receive this invitation. Take this seriously. Even if you're not ready to come right now, you should at least examine the facts before you turn away. And then verses 4 through 6, the invitation is not only to uh, the simple, but it is also, in and of itself, a very simple invitation. Choose the best life. Change your life. And live a life of prudence and discernment. Very simple. Be someone who can lead into and manage challenging situations and decisions. Not somebody who runs from challenging situations and decisions. Somebody who sees a, a problem come up and sees it as an opportunity to work something out that's even better. Uh, we have two daughters, Shelby and Darby. They're, they're adults now. 
And one of the things, Jackie and I believed we had a very uncomplicated way to raise Shelby and Darby. And I'm not saying that we did it right or we're the best and you should just fig do what we do. That's not what I'm saying. It, I feel like it worked in our context. One of the things we did, which we think was very, very helpful, was we decided the minute Shelby was born, we said we are going to raise our children as best as we can to be good decision makers. We're going we're to allow them to make their own decisions as is prudent and, and wise with their various ages, but we're going to allow them the ability to sit down, have a conversation with us about a decision that's coming up, help them to understand how to weigh the consequences, how to look at what the benefits are and what are the costs of the decision, help that, here you go, here you go. We wanted to help them to be good critical thinkers. Critical thinking, I would guess that that's lacking in today's world right now. The ability to not only see what's right in front of you, but also to see what's behind what's right in front of you, and to see what's ahead of what's right in front of you, what might happen with what's right in front of you. The ability to think about what are the motivations and the worldviews behind what I'm thinking about and what somebody is telling me. And so even at the age of four, they had a decision. I, I know, frosted flakes are lucky charms. Well, let's sit down and get a piece of paper and put a line, benefits of each, okay? And it was always frosted flakes because breakfast cereal with marshmallows is just wrong. It just is. I'm sorry. It just is, okay? And we helped them to be able to make those wise decisions. But as they grew, of course, we had them make more and more of these decisions and help them through that. And I would say they're competent decision makers, number one, but number two, here you go, here you go, number two, they also understand that they're going to have to deal with the consequences of what decision they make either way. Because part of training people to be good decision makers is not to bail them out all the time. Let me tell you something, that's really hard as a parent. Because our, our flinch is to just bail them out. So I, I think that's helpful. So look at verses 7 through 12. These are these observations that um, Brian did not read. I specifically asked him not to read these. They're just observations about wisdom. I, uh, I'm sorry, where's nine? There's nine, okay. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Scoffer and wicked, what are those synonyms for? The fool, Okay. So whoever corrects a fool gets himself abuse. Whoever uh, reproves a fool incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom starts with understanding who God is. That's where it starts, that reverential awe. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. The wise live longer and they live better. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. So the irony of these verses is that Ms. Wisdom is saying these things, both as general observations, but also as a resignation to this fact, most people will refuse correction. 
most people will look wisdom dead in the eye and walk away. That's the way most people handle wisdom. Lady Wisdom is resigned to the fact that the vast majority of the simple are just going to refuse her invitation and be lured in by, by Ms. Folly. And, 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 and sin is, as cynical as that sounds, she's saying, the more you try to help or correct or counsel most people, the more they are driven by their own stubbornness deeper and deeper into foolishness. And as a pastor, I have seen this. People will come to us looking for an answer to a situation. And they will go to several people in the church, elders, pastors, uh, RC leaders, deacons, and they will hear the same answer from disparate people who have not talked to each other about this. They'll hear the same answer, same answer, and then finally, finally, they'll get one person to give them the answer they wanted to hear, and then, okay, so-and-so said I could do that, and then they'll go, and then they'll suffer for it. They will suffer for it. And verse 10 is the simple fact that submission to the will of God is wise and prudent, and it's the best thing that you and I can do, do for ourselves. And yet, human beings, just they, we do. We just recoil against this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, unequivocally, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 12. Let me just reread verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. It's very simple. You and I are personally responsible for the consequences of our decisions. We will bear the consequence of every decision we make. And the minute we try to slough that consequence off on somebody else, it's only going to make matters worse. It's interesting. This started in the beginning. Go, go back, 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 back. Okay, all the way back to Genesis 3, the man and the woman eat the fruit, God comes into the garden, the first thing God says to the man is, who told you and have you eaten of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat? And what does the man do? The woman you gave me. And we've been like that ever since. We, we, we run toward folly, and then when the consequences start coming to us, we're pointing everywhere. We're pointing everywhere. And that's a problem. Wise decisions bring about life and goodness. Are there some wise decisions that haven't worked out for you? Yeah, maybe. But we're still living. But you know that foolish decisions screw us up. They just do. You know that, and we need to avoid those. And yet, the way we're made, because of the sin that is inherent in us, because our hearts are so deceptive, here's what we do. We want to sow in the field of foolishness, and then we expect to reap from the field of wisdom. It does not work. It does not work. That's a foolish thing right there, to think that you can go to a fig tree and pick an apple. You can't do it. We reap where we sow. And then here's Folly's invitation. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. That's such an interesting sentence to me. She's obnoxious. She's kind of sexy. But she's vapid. She's empty up top. She sits at the door of her house. 
She takes a seat in the high places in town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, here you go, listen to this. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. You know, I know, our hidden sins, those are sweet, aren't they? The ones that we think nobody knows about, the ones that we think that we've even fooled God about. Oh, that stolen water is so sweet. That bread is so delicious. But here's where it takes us. Look at verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Here's what happens when we become fools and we engage in foolishness. We're dead and we don't even know it. And we're with the dead and we don't even know it. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. That's a great song. It's kind of foolish though. It's kind of foolish because they're dead. This invitation is so familiar to us today as well with all the Think about all the platforms we have now to communicate with each other. You know, I'm, I'm older, so I remember when we didn't have all these various ways that we could send messages to each other. But it's just different. Everyone today, everyone is calling out. Everyone. Everyone. This is what it's, this is what it's like when, when we're out there. This is what I feel like. Hey, 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 I turn off my phone. The laptop pops up. Hey, 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 hey. How annoying was that? That's what we live in today, though. That's what we live in. Everyone's calling out, but not everybody has wisdom. Have we figured that out yet? Wisdom is a woman of faith, conviction, and purity. Folly, she is portrayed as an adulteress. And if you want to get into the ancient Hebrew word, the word is whore. She's a whore. Everything she touches is corrupt. It's poison. Yet her promise is one of glee, of pleasure, of fulfillment. Folly seems to ask nothing, but it costs us everything. I believe we hear Jesus in the two gates here. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction or death. And those who enter by it are many, lots of people on that wide path, that wide gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few will find this pursuit of wisdom. Few will find that. Ms. Wisdom and Jesus both cry out. A monumental decision is placed before us. Will you choose life or death? It's really this serious. And here's some irony in all this. Every one of us, we're a control freak. And if you say, I'm not a control freak, then you're a bigger control freak than the person sitting next to you. Because you're in denial. Okay? But the truth is, we have very little control. Have you, ever, have you, have you figured that out yet? You know, really, the inevitability, here you go. Here's how little control we have. The inevitability of body atrophy. Okay? 
the, the inevitability of, of the fact that um, our minds are digressing, eventually they will. The inevitability uh, that, that when we try to control and change other people, we can't do it. Have you noticed that? Our dependency on millions of other factors for life's results to go our way in work, in romance, in business, in our neighborhood. Millions of other factors we have to depend on that we have no control over. But we try to control these things. We want to control these things. We even convince ourselves most of the time that we are controlling them. And that's folly. That's foolishness. Yet this is the one thing in our lives we can control. This is the one thing we can control. We can choose life. We can humbly submit ourselves to the will and the wisdom of God. This decision is in our court. Will we allow God, by his will and wisdom, to give us the ability to meet the demands of reality? I've been profoundly affected lately by the writings of John Townsend and Henry Cloud. And one of the things that Townsend includes in, in a number of his books is this chart. I didn't put it up on the screen. I just, I'm hoping I can describe it for you. It's this chart where he has way at the top, he has this line that he calls ideal. Or another word for it would be utopia or fantasy. Ideal, utopia, or fantasy. This line way up here, this is where all of us want to live our life in the ideal, in a utopia, in a fantasy, where everything is perfect. Here you go. It's the Garden of Eden before the apple was eaten. That's where we want to be. And then there's a line way down here. This line he calls reality. This is where life actually exists, is down here. And he says everything in between here is where we have our issues our dysfunction, and our suffering. Our issues, our dysfunction, and our suffering, most of that is contained here because we think we deserve this, we think we can attain this, or we're mad that we haven't been able to get here, and we're refusing to deal with this. And then he says this. He says, biblical wisdom and biblical character is what gives us, God's people, the ability to meet the demands of reality. If you're going to meet the demands of reality, if you're going to live well in reality with contentment, with victory, in righteousness, and justice, and equality, with shrewdness, you need God's wisdom and you need his character. That's how you're going to meet the demands of reality. And again, the irony of this is that this was all accomplished for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. When he went to the cross, people looked at that and said, foolishness. And then even after he was resurrected, people looked at the cross and the resurrection, and they still say, foolishness, foolishness. But that's where that power was accomplished. That's where the wisdom of God was accomplished. That's where we saw the outworking of the will of God in his own son's life that he had to suffer the reality of the cross in order to have the resurrection and have life. And that's what wisdom is inviting us to. Let's pray together and we'll finish things up. Lord God, we thank you so much for 
the truth of your word and your wisdom. And God, we just, we pray that we would be people that would diligently pursue your wisdom, that we would diligently uh, submit to your will, and that we would seek to know you. We call on you to fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do that. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to 